you've got your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2. Um, much of Steve's testimony, I'm telling you, it couldn't be more applicable to the message from this second chapter of Amos. Because really the issue that Amos is confronting in the northern kingdom of Israel was the issue of idolatry in the lives of God's people. Israel had a worship problem, and because they had a worship problem, society was on the brink. There was chaos and there was immorality. Society had spiraled downward, and it was all the result of their idolatry and disordered lives, disordered loves. And so Amos was a shepherd from the hill country of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the call of God came into his life and he was sent into the northern kingdom of Israel with a message. Now his name means one who bears a burden. And Amos was not a professional prophet. He was not the son of a prophet. He hadn't been to prophet school. But the call of God came into his life when he was tending sheep and dressing sycamore trees. And he was a very ordinary man with no credentials by the world's standard. But he's the profile of the type of person that God always delights in using. And so God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary tasks and thereby advance his kingdom cause in the world. And God gives his saints a testimony, a platform that serves as a showcase for his own glory. That's what he does in Amos. He sends this simple farmer into the northern kingdom of Israel with a confrontational and shocking message. And really for nine straight chapters, the word of God delivered through the prophet is primarily directed against the northern kingdom of Israel. They had been a people who were richly blessed, spiritually blessed, but they had lost understanding of what it meant to love God and to truly love their neighbor. And so Chuck Swindoll has said of the book of Amos that perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. The people had become idolatrous in their worship and because of that, they had lost their compassion for one another and particularly the most vulnerable in society. And so Amos rebukes the northern kingdom because he saw in Israel's lifestyle evidence that they had forgotten the God who had redeemed them in the first place. And so it's interesting, there's some parallels between the society of Amos's day uh, and those issues that we're facing in our own time. His generation was known for spiritual prosperity and yet it was also being marked out for its spiritual bankruptcy and moral degeneracy. And really there had been an epic breakdown in their social relationships with each other because there had been a major breakdown first and foremost in their spiritual relationship with God. And so the light of God's truth had been pushed out of their national life and society was on the brink of disaster as a result. Which, by the way, one of the lessons that it seems like we always tend to forget, every generation tends to forget this, 
It's the utter failure of man when it comes to building a utopian society from a secular perspective. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, it's the false idea that says man is actually improving himself or is getting better all of the time. Now, sure, there are technological advancements, but not spiritually. Man can't save himself from the problems that have plagued him and his society going all the way back to the days just outside the Garden of Eden. One commentator has said this, despite the Holocaust of two world wars in which 50 million people were killed without the aid of nuclear weapons, men and women still believe that society can get its act together without the fear of God. And yet all the while, the Bible says that it's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. A few years ago, there was an article that sort of went viral on social media, and the title of the article was this, Why I Raise My Children Without God. Now, the author of this article was a young mother who listed several reasons why she shielded her children from learning about God. And basically, in the article, she argued that a loving God, if he existed, would not allow, quote, murders, child abuse, wars, brutal beatings, torture, and millions of heinous acts to be committed throughout the history of mankind. So really, she couldn't reconcile all of the injustices of the world with the existence of a loving creator. And so she therefore rejected the God of the Bible, and in her article, she proposed a materialistic worldview as an alternative. And here's what she said, we are just a very, very small part of a big, big machine, and the influence we have is minuscule. We must accept the realization of our insignificance. Now, the thing is, her contradictions couldn't be more obvious in that article. If we're nothing more than just an insignificant part of a vast machine, then why is she so concerned about injustice in the world? The light of general revelation tells her that there is right and there is wrong and that humanity has an inward sense of morality. She knows that there's something wrong, something broken in the world, but unbelief leads her to reject the truth and blame it all on a God who she says doesn't even exist. Now folks, listen, the message of Amos is one that links the sin the injustice, the brokenness of society to a rejection of God and his, and his truth. And so in that way, I'm telling you, this prophet, this minor prophet speaks with clarity to this modern generation in which we live. One that severed the quest for justice from its divine and authoritative source. Now we're in this second chapter. I wanna to return to this text. We began looking at this last week. And honestly, as the message of Amos begins in chapter 1, Amos cries out against the sins of Israel's neighbors. And this is intentional because he's getting ever so close to home. And beginning with verse number 4, you'll notice that the message turns from Israel's unbelieving neighbors to a message to God's covenant people, both Judah in the south and the kingdom in the north, Israel. So let's begin reading there, verse number 4. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not reject the punishment or revoke the punishment. 
because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Some translations say it this way, their false gods have led them astray. False gods after which their fathers walked. And so I'll send the fire upon Judah and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. And behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. And he who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Now speaking from this subject this morning, God's message to his covenant people. Having spoken to those nations that surrounded Israel, now the Lord is speaking through the prophet to God's own covenant people. And in verses four and five, uh, he deals with the southern kingdom of Judah and says that God's message to Judah is one of judgment due to rejection of the truth that God has revealed. And so we looked at this last Sunday morning. Judah had rejected the truth that God had revealed. And notice that really the, their rejection is seen sort of in a threefold way. Verse 4 says they rejected the law of the Lord, which means they didn't want to have anything to do with his instruction. It speaks of an inward turning away from that which is true, that which God himself had revealed in his word. And then, as a result of that, they did not keep his statutes. And the emphasis there is on the practical. It's on the trajectory of their life. Because there had been an inward turning away from God and his truth, now the trajectory of their life was one in which they were not keeping his statutes. And then ultimately, notice where that led. Their lies then led them astray. Or their false gods that they had exchanged the one true God with, those false gods or idols began leading them astray and it was the very same sins that their fathers had been guilty of generations before. So they had not learned the lessons from their own history. And so listen, that's the way that it always is when truth is rejected. God's truth is rejected. You ever heard this statement? 
Nature abhors a vacuum. That's also true with the human heart or the mind where truth is not uh, in operation in a person's heart, uh, inwardly welcomed and received. Something is going to become ultimate in a person's life. You're going to worship something that's non-negotiable. The issue is what or who you're worshiping. Because all of humanity, just by design, this is the way God has created us, we will worship something. We will serve something as being ultimate in our lives. Now because of sin and because of alienation from God, even though man has been created in the image of God, he's a worshiper. Sin and unbelief leads humanity to worship idols. And idols take the place of the one true God in a person's heart and life. And that's what was going on in God's uh, covenant people's lives. That's happening there in Judah. And then the message is a little bit more specific as you get into verse number six as far as the northern kingdom was concerned. The northern kingdom, they were further along in their disobedience and idolatry than their southern counterparts. And so Judah is marked for judgment because they had rejected the truth that God had revealed Well, the message through the prophet to Israel is this. They were guilty of mistreating the people that God had created. And so their idolatry then led them to treat their fellow man in a very inhumane way. Which, by the way, inhumanity, an unjust society, let me tell you something. This is the direct result of something greater than what you see on the surface in that society. It all goes back to the rejection of God in the heart and in the conscience. Because when an idol takes the place of God in a person's heart, the logical result of that will be a diminished view of humanity and those who were made in the image of God. And that's what's happening there in the northern kingdom. You'll notice that the specific sins uh, that the Lord is holding his covenant people accountable for there, they all have to do with sin as far as their relationships with one another are concerned. And yet you can't miss what's happening here. It was the direct result of having exchanged the worship of the one true God for the pursuit of idols. Society was falling apart around them, coming apart at the seams, uh, on the brink of destruction simply because they had rejected God inwardly. And so though you see issues there on the surface that are mentioned, these are merely the symptoms of a much greater issue deep down within the hearts and lives of God's people. And it was their unbelief, it was their rejection of the one true God who's revealed himself. Now what had happened in the northern kingdom? Well, if you were to go back 170 years before the the time of Amos, the kingdom of Israel had been divided and you had 10 of the northern tribes that broke away from the descendants of David. They formed their own kingdom in the north. The southern kingdom in the south is the kingdom of Judah and is loyal to the Davidic crown. And so Jeroboam the first becomes king in the northern kingdom. And 1 Kings chapter 12 says that he developed his own state religion there in the north. He was jealous. He thought that if people in his kingdom went to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, then their heart might be tempted to return their loyalties to David's descendants. 
And so he was threatened by the worship as God had outlined it in the word. And so what did he do? He had two golden calves made and said to the nation, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so he had these two golden calves built. He had them placed, uh, placed in shrines in the city of Bethel in his kingdom, the city of Dan. And it was all a religion of convenience. It had denied the, the, the way that God had decreed he was to be worshipped and outlined he was to be worshipped in his law. But Jeroboam said, no matter. You know, you bow down to these golden calves. This is the God of Israel. And so in name, they were worshiping the God of Israel, but they were not worshiping the God of Israel in truth. And every king that followed Jeroboam the first is marked out for this kind of judgment because they continue in the way of the sins of Jeroboam. And you read that a lot in 1 Kings and on into 2 Kings. So you fast forward 170 years to the time of Amos, God's people are in the throes of idol worship all in the name of the God of Israel. And society had been prosperous and yet God raises up Amos and he's saying, listen, let me tell you something. Your material prosperity is not necessarily the sign of God's blessing and favor on you. But all of this stuff has led you away from the worship of the one true God. And so in that way, Amos' message is very confrontational. Now, their worship of idols led them to treat one another in a very unjust way, a sinful and wicked way. Notice how their sin is manifest there in verse 6 through uh, greed and, and, and taking advantage of one another. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Just like the nations around them that had been marked out for judgment, Israel had now reduced people to nothing more than things. They were more concerned about what they put on their feet than they were their fellow man. And yet all the while, God had expected his covenant people to be different. His law demanded just treatment in their dealings with one another. You want to see the kind of selfless, sacrificial outlook that God intended his people to live with? Uh, Look at the book of Ruth. How Ruth and Naomi are provided for by Boaz, who's a kinsman redeemer. This was the design that God had in mind for the way that his covenant people were to deal with each other and provide for the poor and that kind of thing. You want to know what that looks like under the new covenant? Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at the history of the early church in the book of Acts and see how the early church uh, were so sacrificial in terms of their dealings with each other. If anybody had a need in their midst, someone who had means would, would sell something to meet the need. And that's not advocating some type of government-enforced socialism. That's the church of Jesus Christ. When God is at the center, and it's a voluntary act of sacrifice and generosity, and it's something that only the Spirit of God can produce. And so in that way, the church ought to be a powerful testimony to the unbelieving world. This is what society ought to look like when it's under the lordship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the church ought to be a powerful witness to an unbelieving world. So you get into verse 7, and you'll notice how the relationships with one another are further seen in sort of this diminished view. There's sexual immorality 
permissiveness, perversion had eroded the sanctity of marriage in Israelite society. And it's interesting to me that the decline of society ran parallel to the decline and cheapening of human sexuality. Verse 7 talks about father and son going into the same girl. This idea of treating people as objects. And the result of all of this was that God's name was profaned, which meant it was desecrated. The honor of God's name had been violated. It means to mistreat as a common thing. And it was a serious offense. And then you get into verse number eight and you see how ultimately it all can be traced back to a problem at the altar. Worship. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who had been fined. In other words, self-centered idolatry was characteristic of God's people in the north. They mistreated others all while pursuing their own idolatrous self-interest. And this is not just a collection of random examples here, but it's a composite picture of a corrupted society that knew better, but it turned its back on the truth. And what's so shocking is that these are precisely the same sins that marked those nations surrounding Israel out for judgment. And what was true of the people that did not know God was now true of those who did claim to know God. And so the Lord is putting his finger on the issue in the lives of his people, and ultimately it was a spiritual issue. Idols had taken the place of one true God, and the result of that was inhumanity and mistreatment of their fellow man. Now, there's a third thing. You get into verse 9, God's message to his people. Why had things got to this? How had they gotten to this point? Ultimately, it was because they had despised the grace that God had provided. So society was going down, a downward spiral, stemming all the way back to a rejection of the truth that God had revealed. It was showing up in a mistreatment of people that God had created in his own image. And ultimately, it was because they had despised the grace that God himself had provided. Notice the personal language that the Lord is using there in his message to Israel. Verse 9, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before you. In other words, it was, it was I who uprooted those in the land before you and brought you into the land that you now possess as your inheritance. God said, I did this for you as an act of grace. He says in verse 10, even before that, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who redeemed you from your bondage in Egypt in the first place. You didn't come out of Egypt because you were a strong people. You came out of Egypt because you were a weak people who desperately needed me and my rescue. And I'm the one who provided for you during all of those 40 long years of wandering around in the wilderness. And it was all a testament to God's grace and it's something that they had forgotten. God says in verse 11, I even raised up some of your sons for prophets. Some of your young men for Nazarites. Who were the Nazarites? Who were the prophets? These were the ones through whom God gave his word to his people. You think about the Nazarite vow, uh, many of the judges. I think about Samson. I think about Samuel. 
On into the New Testament, John the Baptist, the Nazarite vow, basically Numbers chapter 6 talked about the Nazarite vow. You know, the, the specific credentials for the one who is a Nazarite in order to be separated and different. He didn't cut his hair, didn't go near a dead body, didn't drink anything, you know, uh, from grapes. All of that was, it was just a symbolic way of him and his separation to God. And God says that was really for the benefit of speaking truth into society. The fact that he committed his word to prophets who then preached that word to his people. But how had Israel responded to all of that? Verse 12, you made the Nazarites drink wine. In other words, you forced them to compromise their calling. You commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. In other words, we don't want to hear what the men of God have to say. Don't speak that truth. We we don't want to hear that. And it was all because they had forgotten God in the worship and the pursuit of their own idolatrous ambitions. So God's people were up to their eyeballs in idolatry. And what I want you to see is this. The result was social breakdown. The result was inhumanity, and there is a major connection. Idols always lead to a lower view of human life, not a higher view of human life. You go back to Romans chapter 1, and you could use Romans 1 as a template to understand how Israel got to the place where they were here in Amos 2. Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man. And so whenever you exchange the creator for something in his creation, it will also result in an exchange of a high view of humanity made in God's image for a lower view. And the thing is, you and I are not self-existent. We are not self-sufficient. We are not self-defining. We did not create ourselves. We are finite, dependent creatures who owe our existence to a transcendent, self-existent creator. And as a result of being made in his image, we will always look to something outside of ourselves for ultimate meaning. Did you know that? And for some folks, it's work. What you do, this is where you derive your sense of identity. And if that's you, then listen, people will either be a means of helping you achieve that objective, or they'll be objects standing in your way for you to treat however you want to treat. For others, material gain, money, possessions, this is what's ultimate. It's all about the money. And so people then, they become a means of helping me achieve what I want or they become objects standing in my way and therefore I can treat them however I want. If lust is a God that's enthroned in your heart, then people become a means to an end. You see how this works? Idolatry always leads to a diminished view of humanity. But folks, when Jesus Christ is enthroned in the human heart, when Christ is where he ought to be, when God is where he ought to be in my heart and in my life, the result of that will be loving my neighbor as myself. 
And that's only true of the Christian worldview. No other worldview on the planet, no other worldview that's held by any other person leads to a higher view of humanity than the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that's just the fact of the matter. This is what Israel had done. They'd exchanged the creator for something in creation and the result of that was social breakdown. Society was on the brink. And then notice in verse 13, ultimately God's going to allow them to face the judgment that he himself had determined. God says, behold, I'm gonna press you down in your place. Flight will perish from the swift. The strong will not retain his strength. The idea in his divine justice, God would allow Israel to experience the consequences of their sin. Yes, he had been gracious all of their days. Yes, he had led them in the way. It brought them into the land. They had sinned against a vast amount of light that they had been shown, but the universal law of the harvest is this, whatever we sow, we will also reap. And so the God of their deliverance is also the God of their discipline. And so what he's saying in verses 13 and the verses that follow, when judgment comes, it won't matter how great your military is. It won't matter how smart your sons or daughters are or what institutions they got their degrees from. It won't matter what your level of self-determination is on that day. None of that will matter when God holds the nation accountable for its sins. And again, if you were to go back to Romans 1 as a blueprint to understand what's going on here, a sign of God's judgment on a society is the fact that he gives them up or he hands them over to experience the consequences of their idolatry. Romans 1.28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. God gave them up, God gave them over. The phrase is used many times there at the end of Romans chapter one. It doesn't mean that God gives up on people. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give up on people? There's somebody that you know that's not saved. You desperately wanna see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't believe that God's given up on that person. No, this is the opposite. Paul is saying the opposite there in Romans 1. It means that God tries to get through to people by allowing them to experience the negative consequences of their idolatrous choices. That's what it means. This is his divine strategy. You see it all throughout the Old Testament with Israel. Psalm 81, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Why do you have to turn to idols, thinking that idols are going to satisfy? God says, I'm the one who'll fill your mouth and give you good things. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And God says, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. It's almost as if God's saying, okay, have it your way. See for yourself how destructive your choices are really going to be. That's what it means when Paul says in Romans 1, God gives them over. And then from verse 26 of that chapter through the end of that chapter, 
He illustrates the harmful consequences of idolatry with its list of self-destructive behavior. And he's basically saying society and individuals who give themselves over to idols will inevitably self-destruct. Society will come apart at the seams when the truth of God has been rejected, leading to the mistreatment of those that God has made in his own image, all because his covenant people had despised his grace. The result of it, God says, you're going to face the judgment that I have decreed, which is largely the consequences of their own decisions. Now, why is it that God allows us to experience consequences? Listen to me. God is a God of grace. God is a God of forgiveness. Aren't you grateful that forgiveness means that your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west? God is a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of compassion. He's also a God of justice. And he's holy. And when you pursue idols in his holiness, in his righteousness, God will allow you to experience the consequences that's brought on by the pursuit of those idols. And he uses these negative experiences to press people to a point of decision. Will they continue worshiping a counterfeit God that's destroying them? Or will they repent and will they turn to the one true God? That's the point of decision that we all face this morning. That's the point of decision that our nation faces. That's the point of decision that's faced by both individuals and nations. Will we continue on in our idolatrous pursuit of stuff? Our idolatrous pursuit of some part of creation that we remove, we separate from the creator himself and we make that part of creation ultimate and we bow down and we worship it. That's what idolatry really is. It's taking a good thing, a gift from the creator and worshiping it as if it were an ultimate thing. And that's a serious thing. That's what God's people had done in Amos' day. And folks, I'm telling you, it's still the issue, the underlying issue that's true as far as nations, societies, and individual lives are concerned even today. So my life is under the microscope. You consider the idols that people live for, financial success. Is it financial success that you're all about? Then if so, you'll evaluate every activity in your life by its economic payoff you'll size up people and you'll ask whether or not people are really useful on that basis of what you can get from them idolatry leads to inhumanity is the most important thing in your life some relationship is it your physical appearance is the most important thing in your life what people say about you what people think about you Is it your academic achievements, your professional accomplishments? Listen, no matter what your idol is, you will feel pressure to measure every part of life by that yardstick. And people will either be a means to what you want or they will stand in your way. But the way of Jesus is different, isn't it, church? 
The way of Jesus is different. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that we can be rescued from the dead end road of idolatry. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Idols will wear you out. They lead only to death, self-destruction. But Jesus said, you come to me and I'll give you the rest that you need and you long for. Would you stand with me? Let's pray this morning. With heads bound and eyes closed, listen. Do you know Christ as your personal Savior this morning? Do you have a testimony? Man, we've heard a powerful testimony this morning. What God does in the life of a person by means of His grace. God doesn't spare us from difficulty or pain. But folks, I'm telling you something. Jesus Christ is living water. And he's a well that never runs dry. Are you thirsty? Come to him. Come to Jesus. Confess your sin and your great need for him. Believe that he died on the cross to save you. That he rose again from the dead. And commit your life to him in faith. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And God, how desperately we need your truth. Lord, thank you for your grace. It's so easy for us, Lord, to be forgetful. We get caught up in life and the issues of life, the issues of the day. But God, may we never take for granted what you've done for us in Christ. Idols cannot satisfy. The stuff of this world cannot satisfy. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus satisfies. And we bless his name this morning. God, keep us from the error of the people in Amos' day. And we literally look around at society and we feel like we're a society on the brink. Lord, we could talk about certain issues, but they're merely symptoms of a much greater problem. And the problem is man's alienated from God and he needs Jesus. And that gospel message is what you've given to us as your church. And oh God, how love for you may it result in genuine love for our neighbor. And may the world be taken back by what they see in our lives, in our fellowship, to the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.